as hell and I wanna get ill So I go to a place where my homeboys chill Fellas out there trying to make that dollar I pulled up in the 6-4 Impala Alright everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Board as Hell podcast I'm Adam McDonald with Big Shiny Robot And I am Andy Wilson, aka Citizen Bot, also with Big Shiny Robot And we've got three movies to talk to you about this week Rock the Casbah with Bill Murray Um Gem and the Holograms, and the Steve Jobs kind of biopic, maybe a little bit fictional. Um, anyways, Andy, tell us about Gem and the Holograms. Yeah, well, we're definitely going worst to first here today. Uh, Gem and the Holograms, as some of you may fondly, some of you may less fondly remember, uh, as a cartoon show from the 80s about uh, a girl and a rock band and... They had a computer that turned her into a rock star when she touched her magic earrings and there were adventures and something. I don't know. Gem was never really my jam as a kid. And I never watched it as a kid either, so I'm I'm unfamiliar. Yeah, but uh, there seems to be a lot of pent-up goodwill and nostalgia for this property, which is why Hasbro went ahead and said, well, we're going to reboot this and make a new movie of it. Uh, which is unfortunate in a way because this movie isn't bad. It's not particularly good. <laughs> but I don't know exactly who this movie is for um, because it, the people that it seems to be targeted for, it misses the mark in a lot of ways. For example, if you are a fan of the property of Gems, uh, there's just enough in here to make you think, oh, yeah, this is kind of like that cartoon that I remember. But there's a, so many ways that it's so different that you're going to feel very frustrated about it. Specifically, like the one most iconic thing about Gem and the Holograms was that theme song, which right. I remember. And it's nowhere to be found in here. Really? Which, yeah, in a movie with a half a dozen musical numbers, and they don't even do the theme song. It's like, how simple was this? Just have them do it, or heck, have Demi Lovato do it. Have Oh, no, thank you. Yeah, well, just someone. I don't care. And then play it over the credits. It, it just didn't... It seems like a no-brainer, and yet they didn't do it. Huh. Now, the... Now, that being said, uh, what this movie is, is actually kind of cute and kind of cool. This is a movie for the YouTube generation. The story, as much of it as there is, is about young Jerrica and Kimber. They lose their dad and mom and go to live with their aunt in the California suburbs. And her two adopted daughters... Aja and Shauna. And the four of them have this tight family unit. They love music in their spare time. They're on social media all the time. And they're uploading music videos. Except for poor little Jerrica, who's so shy. And she just writes in her music notebook all the time. And she won't put anything on video until one day when she finds a pink wig and puts on a bunch of crazy makeup 
and shoots a video in her room of just her singing a song straight to camera. And of course, her little sister Kimber steals it, puts it on the web, and it suddenly goes viral. And everybody's saying, Who is Jem? Who is this new girl? Uh, enter evil music executive who may as well have had a uh, a snidely whiplash mustache to twirl here. Uh, <laughs> and uh, who, of course, is going to take advantage of uh, Jem and her sisters uh, to her advantage. And uh, they have to use their plucky musical skills to find their way out of it. Um, this is kind of a nice story about finding yourself and being true to yourself and especially finding yourself in the world of the internet and social media where everyone can have their own channel and everyone can have their creative outlet so much so that at the end, uh, Jerrica gives this rousing speech about it's like a, I am Spartacus moment. And it's like, I'm Jem and you're Jem and you're Jem. And what makes me special is that we're all special together. And, it's like, and you get a YouTube channel and you get a YouTube channel. Well, you know, it's kind of a nice message. The problem is any kid for whom that message would be useful. They're at home watching PewDiePie and Stampy Longnose and uh, Tobuscus and Good Mythical Morning they're watching these YouTube channels already and they have their own YouTube channels. They're not going to see the gem and the hologram movie because it's like, that's a cartoon from the eighties. What do I care about that? So again, Oh, and then there's 20 minutes in the middle of the movie where it turns into a heist movie and another 20 minutes of the movie where it turns into the freaking Da Vinci code because, of course, there's a subplot where, yeah, remember how Jem got turned into a rock star by the computer? Well, in this version, her dad left her an unfinished robot um, who suddenly magically turns on during the events of this movie and starts leading her down a mystery of, you know, finding herself and, and self-discovery in their family history um, but by taking it to find the next piece of itself so that she can finish building the robot that her father started. It's a little bit treacly and a little bit cute, but, you know, when I was in the theater with my daughter, it, it created a nice little moment for us. But, you know, again, I don't know, like, where else this this movie's going. Again... This movie isn't just so much that it's bad, it's just not so good. And it doesn't really know where it's going, or what it wants to do, or what it wants to be. So, I just kind of went right up the middle here, and gave it 5 out of 10. Hmm. Yeah, that that just sounds like something I would never, ever want to see. <laughs> oh yeah, well, you know what, the, we are absolutely not the target demographic for this movie. But then oh it, yeah, well, I can appreciate that, but even... Like, you, know, you mentioned that you know it's for a certain demographic, and I think that demographic is moms who are our age who look back fondly on this TV show and want to have their daughters and their kids kind of experience it with them. And I don't even see how it's going to work for them because it sounds so different from what the show was originally about. It's like 
Yeah. Where did they come up with this idea? The Da Vinci Code? <laughs> no, seriously. It's it it takes this weird turn in the middle of it, and I I don't know. They I think this movie needed to do one of two things: either explode. Not- not be a movie about Gem and the Holograms and just be its own thing, or they really needed to get back to the core of what their property is all about, and this this didn't seem to really follow through on that. Hmm. So, well, five for that one, and I know you said we're going worst to first, but uh, we, we're going to take a detour with uh, Rock the Casbah, unfortunately. Um, Rock the Casbah is the newest Bill Murray film. Uh, he plays a character named Richie Lands, who is kind of a washed-up um, agent for musical acts. I mean, he always talks about how he was doing Madonna and Bruce Springsteen, all these really, really big names. And now he's pretty much renting out a hotel room in L.A. and scamming young kids to try to get them to... so he can, quote-unquote, support them and put them on tour. Well, one night he is <clears throat> at a bar with Zoe Deschanel, who plays Ronnie, who's kind of like the his sidekick, kind of partner in crime, but also someone he is repping. And she's performing some crappy song at a bar and is told, hey, you should take her on tour and do a USO tour in Afghanistan. He's like, why the hell would I do that? He's like, because there's a lot of money to be made. So, always looking for some money. He and Zoe Deschanel go to Afghanistan, where she promptly leaves him, takes the money, passports, and goes back to the U.S., because screw Afghanistan. So he's now stuck there, no money, no way to get home, and is looking for to do anything he can to try to get the passport and everything else to get back to the U.S. Uh, he ends up uh, working with Danny McBride and Scott Can, who are both arms dealers. He takes uh, all these weapons out with Bruce Willis, who plays uh, Bombay Bryan, who is a mercenary slash whatever. We never really know. Out to this... Uh, little like nomadic tribe out in the middle of Afghanistan to give them these weapons because they're being assaulted by this warlord. And while he's there, he discovers a young girl who has an amazing voice and can sing. And she is in love with a show called Afghan star. So Afghan star actually was a real music competition in Afghanistan, kind of like our American idol. And the movie's based on um, loosely on the fact that there was at one point in time, a young female singer on there. And that was a huge, huge thing because Afghanistan, you know, with very, very strict Muslim rules. And the fact that let a woman go on stage and sing was just kind of obviously tremendously out there, very much a westernized type idea. And so he wants to go ahead and represent her, get her on the show, and, you know, help her win. It sounds convoluted, and it is. Um, the, that's about, that's the movie, by the way. That's that's all that happens. <laughs> um, it. It's really hard to tell what the movie wants to do. Like they, they had no idea what their their idea was. It's almost like Lost in Translation meets Searching for Comedy in the Muslim World by Al Brooks. It's it's, it's the weirdest amalgam of anything you've seen. Uh, Kate Hudson shows up as Mercy, the hooker with a heart of gold, who you know first meets up with Bruce Willis. I mean, Bill Murray, and then later on helps him out. Yeah, it's the first. I'd say two-thirds of the movie up until Bill Murray actually gets out into the tribe and meets the girl who can sing really well. The movie has no idea what it's doing, where it's going, um, why it's there. I mean, there's no point. It, it literally is watching Bill Murray go around, be curmudgeonly, 
and stop one of yours. And not very well, I might add. This is definitely not Bill Murray's uh, best acting job he's ever done. I will say, at the end, the movie does pull all the loose ends and all the little like one-liners and plot pieces and puts them together, and it makes sense. But at that point, who cares? It's yeah, it was it was boring up to the two-thirds. There's some overall good acting in the end. Um, the young girl, I can't find her name unfortunately, who. Um, is the singer on Afghan Star. She's got a great voice and she's um, really good in that. But aside from that, there's nothing much here. It was boring. Um, Kate Hudson has a couple cool lines. She's got the funniest scene is when this uh, young GI soldier finds Bill Murray tied to her bed in drag after a night of shenanigans. But aside from that, I didn't laugh very much. I was bored. It felt really, really long. And it's like an hour and 40 minutes. Um, so I'm only at a four on this one. Yeah, it it did feel long, and the only reason to go see this is Murray's performance. Yeah, the everything you said is spot on. Um, uh, although I I don't know whether I was amused by it or I hated it when right near the end the movie tried to turn into the Three Amigos for a minute. Um, yeah, the movie just didn't know what it was doing. It didn't know yeah. if it was trying to be funny, if it was trying to be serious, if it was trying to, you know, point at, uh, you know, in religious fanaticism. There, there was no, there was no focus. Yeah, exactly. And I wish that they had figured out what they were trying to do with this movie. If it had just been a movie about East meets West, that would be one thing. If it was just a story about this girl and trying to get on Afghan Idol, that would be a much more interesting movie. Uh, make that short movie that's just that last like 25, 30 minutes of the movie with just her and Bill Murray, that would have been immensely more watchable than this. Yeah. Figure out a way to take this whole like, oh, I'm a wash up, washed up ex. Uh, rock tour manager and turn that into something more entertaining than just Bill Murray mugging for 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Which is entertaining in and of itself a little bit. I mean, there's a scene where he has a a traditional Afghan tribal instrument and he's trying to play smoke on the water for them. And, you know... Yeah, that was was kind of funny. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot in here that's like, oh, that's kind of funny, but you never, like, laugh out loud. You're like, Oh, that's amusing. That's uh, that's not the sign of a good comedy. A good comedy actually makes you like burst forth with laughter. Yeah. Uh, and this makes you go, oh, that was that was funny, good, very droll. So yeah, I'm I'm in the same place. Although I think I I appreciated Murray a little bit more. And um, oh, and the other thing that I liked about this was the the underlying political subtext about how messed up uh, American military industrial complex is in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. how everything everything was messed up there because money was flowing like nothing else and no one had any eye on it and it was just so corrupt and so ridiculous Uh, that part of it I found interesting and see I did did too at first and then they never talked about it again (laughs) And then they dropped it. Yeah. yeah. So again, that was a thread for the first like half the movie, and then oh, okay, that's what this movie's going to be about. Nope, 
Yeah, so it, it, again, they did tie it back in the end when you know Bill Murray could have left and been safe and then finds out that the the tribe that he went and sold all these guns to and the ammunition that the they, he was purposely selling them and he didn't know it, uh, <clears throat> ammunition that didn't work. So they could be slaughtered when this other warlord came to take them over. And so Bill Murray has his chance to kind of be the hero and go back and save the place and blah, blah, blah. But at that point, I just didn't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm at I'm at like a five and a half uh, out of ten, a little bit like to just the tiniest little bit more than Gem and the Holograms, but uh, I can I can definitely see how you are. With... Yeah. <clears throat> now, a movie that we both like a lot more than those two was a Steve lot. Jobs, <laughs> and Andy, I'll let you take point in this because uh, you're a Sorkin fan and he wrote it. Um, so tell us about it. I am a huge Aaron Sorkin fan and I've got to put that out there because um, it really colors my review of this and this is one of the most Sorkin-y things I've ever seen although he tones it down a little bit on the kind of verbal diarrhea uh, and Sorkinisms and instead uh, makes it very very stylistic Um he essentially has assembled this into a three-act play. And uh, this is not the story of the entirety of Steve Jobs' life, although it's supposedly based on uh, the Walter Isaacson uh, biography of Steve Jobs. Um, Instead, what he does is this movie takes place in the 30 or 40 minutes before three iconic product launches uh, that Steve Jobs is doing. The first is in 1984 for the original Mac, uh, right after that Super Bowl ad aired, and the world was on edge, like, wondering what is going to happen with the Mac. Um, Then the second act is Jobs is trying to launch the next. He's been fired from Apple, and he's out on his own trying to launch this new computer uh, that's very heavy on style. And the third launch is uh, the launch of the iMac in 1998 after Jobs has returned to Apple. And uh, and I think the rest, as we know, is kind of history. Jobs really became who we think of as Steve Jobs, the mm-hmm. figure after that, where suddenly we're all tuning in streaming to see the new Apple launch, to see the new iPhone, to see the new iPod. The, the whatever. Yeah, the new iMac. Um, you know, whatever whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, all the new features in OS X. I remember that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, what is really great here is uh, Sorkin really does make this very uh, theatric and the same exact people kind of move on stage and then off stage in very similar ways in all three acts and so here's the very first and the most major problem with this film is really probably most of this never happened like it just didn't happen this way. Yeah, it, it's a fictional telling of, of his life. 
at all. Yeah. So it's like, yes, there were these three product launches. Yes, these people were there. None of this dialogue ever happened. None of these things ever happened. Like, Jobs is getting mad at uh, the, the Mac launch because they can't get the computer to say hello. That never happened. Completely made up. Um, but what's interesting is uh, Steve Wozniak, who is played in this movie by Seth Rogen and does an amazing job doing it, uh, said, like, yeah, he made all this stuff up, but they nailed exactly who Steve Jobs is and how he would have acted in these situations if they had actually played out this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much historical liberty and creative liberty taken with this. You've got to go in with a giant bag of salt. Um, but that being said, it's entertaining as hell and really well done. And the, the best way I can think of is if you go and you watch Julius Caesar or Richard the third or uh, Henry the fourth part two um, or Antigone or Macbeth, these aren't actual historical things that happened, but mm. they're kind of like historical events that happened. Um, you know, it's, uh, or, uh, Greek retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey. It, these aren't actually the events of the Trojan War. They're um, they're told for a purpose because they're more entertaining this way. Never let uh, the facts get in the way of a good story. So uh, Sorkin doesn't, and uh, Danny Boyle doesn't as director here. And he takes the script and takes these actors and just milks them for all they are worth and uh, really captures this on film uh, in a way that is both theatrical and cinematic. Uh, So great job there. And I can't go away from this movie without mentioning Michael Fassbender. Who is fantastic. I mean, he, uh, especially in the the final act when he's launching the IMAC, um, he not only like, looked like Steve Jobs, like what like we remember from, you know, you know the Black Turtle like and everything else. I mean, he's, he's spot on, just sounded like it. Like, you, I forgot it was Michael Fassbender playing Steve Jobs. It was like you're watching the real person actually up there on the screen. Exactly. It's, it's so amazing. And Fassbender, I mean, I've always been impressed at his acting, but this is just above and beyond. I mean, he's so completely inhabits this character of Steve Jobs. And I say that like the character of Steve Jobs, like I'd say the character of Julius Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing that those are not the actual people. Um, So it's really interesting. And this film really puts you through the ringer. If you come into this movie as a huge Apple and Jobs fan you're going to leave kind of hating jobs and kind of understanding why everybody thought he was a total dick. If you think jobs is awful and a hack, you are going to come out the other end with a newfound respect and a real understanding 
of the kind of genius that he was and what he was trying to do. For the rest of us who may come in somewhere in between that, you're going to come out with this incredibly complex sense of what was going on with this guy. You love him, then you hate him, then you love him so much more, and then you hate him so much more. And it's it's just absolutely amazing. And everything that you think you hate about Apple products, it's it is uh, amplified here. Everything you love about Apple products, yeah, it is amplified here too. Uh, it's just absolutely amazing uh, how Sorkin and Boyle and these actors are able to match all of this thematically to who Steve Jobs is. And so it's the, just this amazing piece of art. And I, I can't... I can't say enough good things about it, but I have bad things to say about it. But before I do, you go ahead, Adam. So I think I, I kind of went in, I disagree a little bit uh, as far as if you're an Apple fan, you're going to come out hating Steve Jobs, and if you're not, you'll come out liking him. Um, I, I have a lot of Apple stuff. I mean, I'm recording this on a MacBook. I, I'm getting texts from my boss on my iPhone while we're doing this. <laughs> uh, I've got a lot of Apple stuff throughout my house. I've you know, got an Airport Extreme over here. That's giving me the internet to get on. But I think um, I kind of knew a bit about Steve Jobs going in. Like, I'd never read the biographies, but just from seeing him on the news and hearing about his life, I kind of knew he, was, he wasn't the most pleasant person to get around with. He was a, a genius. You know, we'll definitely go there. Uh, so I went in, and I kind of left with the exact same idea of who he was and what he is. Um, but the most important thing to keep in mind is that, like you said, this is a very fictional retelling of this person's life. Uh, this movie is the story of a man, not so much the history of the man. Um, even, like you said, with like Julius Caesar and uh, Richard III is you know Shakespeare writing those. Uh, again, it was there was some truth thrown in, but overall it was there to entertain and give you a better idea of what these people were like. And that's exactly what this movie does. Uh, Sorkin's script is brilliant. Uh, it's not quite as sorkin as, say, like, The Newsroom or West Wing. Um, but it's definitely, it's got that same quippiness to it. It's fast-paced. Uh, it's definitely a dialogue movie. Uh, the acting is fantastic. Uh, Jeff Daniels uh, <clears throat> playing uh, the CEO of Apple at the time that Steve Jobs was there originally, John Scully, um, is fantastic. And, of course, he just came off The Newsroom, so he speaks Sorkin very fluently. Yes, he does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and But it's, it's cool because as much as he was... Uh, playing his character from the newsroom in The Martian. This one, he's not quite that there, so it's, it's kind of toned down a bit, which is great. Um, Seth Rogen, fantastic. I mean, who thought Seth Rogen could act? I know. Uh, Danny Boyle, apparently Danny Boyle can get him to act. Uh, and we'd also be remiss not to mention Kate Winslet as Joanna Hoffman, who is Steve Jobs' kind of right-hand woman, who, for the first half of the movie, I was like, who is that? I, can, I know that's someone... And then it slapped me. It's like, holy crap, that's Kate Winslet. I didn't even recognize her. I mean, she just disappeared in the role so well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, fantastic writing. Uh, Danny Boyle knows how to get great performances out of his actors. Um, masterfully directed. Uh, I, I can't find anything wrong with the script. I think it's a perfect script. Um, Fassbender had better get a nomination for Best Actor for this. I mean, there's there's a lot of, of Oscar-worthy stuff in this film. Um uh, yeah, it's 
it, it may not be a movie for everyone. I think people who, like we were talking about this last night, and you said some movies are kind of like a fine, like an old aged cheese. To some people, it's going to smell gross; they won't go near it. But for people who uh, do watch a lot of movies, like the cinephiles, are going to find a lot more to love here than maybe just your average moviegoer. Um, and as evidenced by the box office this weekend, uh, the average moviegoer did not care for this movie. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, good point. And that's my only real problem with it, is that I think that this especially is such an acquired taste, and that a, a lot of people are just going to be like, Ugh, and turn up their nose at that. And so that's my only hesitation, and while why I will only give this a 7.5 out of 10 if it's if it's me and i'm reviewing it for myself to myself or to like my brother who i know agrees with me on a lot of these things i'll be like yes this is a 10 out of 10 you got to go see it but i think for general audiences i'm at like a seven and a half out of ten yeah and i i have to go into it again understanding that there are some people who will not like this film because it's not their type of movie doesn't for me change the fact how amazing it is. Uh, I I wrestled last night with a score. I can't give it perfect ten. I kind of want to, um, but I'll do next best thing and do a nine point five. Sounds good. Cool. Not bad. Not, Not bad. bad. Yeah. So that, that's that's definitely the, the movie to see this week. Um, and I, I we're not trying to talk down on it, saying you probably won't like it because you probably will. Um, you just may not like it as much as we did because not only are we you know, fans of really, you know, this, this type of cinema. Also, we're both Sorkin fans. <laughs> so yeah. we, we're, we're both devotees to the newsroom in the West Wing. So we uh, we speak Sorkin fluently as well. So that was a big draw. Um, so uh, it's last week before Halloween, and we talked about doing a recommendation every week. And last time we put up scary Disney films versus funny horror films. And uh, it was actually a tie. And we thought since this is the last week of doing this, uh, let's not break the tie. Let's both take a category. So, Andy, you went with uh, scary Disney movies. What was yeah. your choice? Yeah, so a lot of people were wondering, like, what the heck is a scary Disney movie? There's no such thing, right? And we think of Disney being princesses and so on. Yeah, there's a whole other subset of live-action Disney movies, and I'm picking one of those, 1979's. The Black Hole. That was back before I was alive. Yeah. This is this is an old movie, but we had this on uh, on VHS when I was growing up, and this gave me nightmares. Uh, yeah, it's only rated PG, and it's a Disney movie, so yeah. <laughs> right? Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> very, very bad idea um, to let little kids see this. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. It's it's got some cute robots in it, so well, it can't be worse than Eddie's mom letting him watch The Exorcist when he was ten. Okay, that yeah, no, that, <laughs> that, that, this just has this just has scary robots and and crazy black holes and things. So, oh, the story of the black hole is you have uh, a deep space exploration uh, vehicle, the Pegasus, or no, excuse me, the Palomino, not the Pegasus. Um, out in deep space looking for life and they come upon this giant black hole and uh, just outside the event horizon 
of uh, this supermassive black hole, they find floating in space a derelict ship, which happens to match the the make of a ship that was lost uh, decades ago that actually carried the father of one of the members of the crew. So they go in for a closer look, and um, then they find out that the ship is actually not so derelict. Mm. and uh, come on board and are met by the crazy scientist Dr. Heinz Reinhardt who has been studying the black hole and who wants to take his ship in and through it uh, within the next few days because he thinks it is a portal to another world of course it is (laughs) is. Um, so the crew's like okay uh, hey, what happened to the rest of your crew? Oh, they they never reached Earth? That's funny. Oh, yeah, except that he totally, like, turned them all into robots. And uh, they now man this... Uh, they now man this ship as uh, crazy ghost robots or something. Uh, it's, it's never totally explained, but it's really atmospheric and creepy as all get out. Great cast here too. We have Maximilian Schell playing Dr. Heinz Reinhardt. Uh, Maximilian Schell, insane actor, big bushy beard, thick accent. Uh, He's in one of my most favorite mystery science theater 3000s ever, a version of Hamlet that he does, which is just awful. Just absolutely (laughs) awful. (laughs) <laughs> but it's like, hey, that's the guy from the black hole. Um, the crew of the Palomino, you got uh, Anthony Perkins. Hey, that's your your psycho. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've got Robert Forster as uh, the captain. Great character actor who you've probably seen like everywhere in the last 30 years. Uh, you've got Ernest Borgnine. Uh, and uh, you've got uh, Roddy McDowell as the voice of one of the good robots, Vincent, and Slim Pickens playing an old beat-up derelict <laughs> robot uh, who was left on the ship. Who's uh, it, So this is just... It, there's a lot that's fun in here. The, the, the good robots are really cute, and they shoot lasers, and they fly through the air, and they save the people, and the scary robots. Oh my gosh, one of the scariest robots ever. Um, is this giant robot named Maximilian who has these little blender things that pop out of his arms and he like whirs them at you like little blades so he can go in and like, I don't know, scramble your heart and lungs or something. Yeah, um, that happens to somebody. That's a little dark for a Disney movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah, crazy. And, of course, the mind-bending ending of this movie. Spoiler alert. Um, except that it... Well, it's over 30 years old, so it, I don't think it's we also really about that. obvious what, what happens. At the end of the movie, they do go through the black hole, and it is a head trip. Oh, my gosh. Like, is, it as, is it as crazy as Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory and, like, the, in the tunnel? Worse. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely insane and then of course um i think you're left thinking at the end of this movie 
that the black hole is a gateway to hell and that huh. Maximilian the evil robot is now like the lord of hell <laughs> and, like, oh, okay, this is super creepy. Uh, and then, of course, the good people get to go through to heaven to another universe, and it's kind of just ends. And you're like, okay, what did they actually get to when they made it through the black hole? I don't know, but there's an evil hell dimension somewhere in there. Scary Disney movie, y'all. Scary, scary Disney movie. Go check um, it out. Really, just insane crazy good science fiction uh very dramatic and worth an hour and a half of your time it's, it's really short so go check it and see you mentioned to me last night you were picking this one and i remember watching it as a kid i think i was like 10 or maybe a little younger and i don't remember anything about this movie aside from uh the the robot with the blender things that was about all i can remember was the evil robot yep he's freaking scary I like I will put him up there with like the Arnold Terminator as one of the scariest robots of all time. <laughs> so well, I'll, I'll have to check that out too because I I remember so little about that film. <laughs> um, so I went with funny scary, and the, the the first thing to pop in my head was uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yeah. Um, this is a really really small indie film came out a couple years ago, uh, two thousand ten. Uh, it stars Alan Tudyk and Tyler Labine as uh, Tucker and Dale, uh, both these two hillbillies who, um, if, if according to the t- stereotypical um, horror movie trope, should be the, the creepy bad guys. And sure enough, um, there's a group of college kids <clears throat> coming to town. They're, they're gassing up at the gas station to go camping, and they run into Tucker and Dale, who you know both look really ominous and creepy, and freak the kids out, and they drive off. Well, then it switches over to Tucker and Dale, and they're like, oh, look at those college kids. And um, Dale, who's Tyler Labine, is like, oh, that one girl, she's really pretty, but she'd never like someone like me. And you find out these are just two really good guys who uh, took their life savings, um, they were best friends, and they bought this cabin up in the woods. So again, creepy cabin in the woods. Well, they go up there, and they go fishing, and while they're they're fishing, uh, one of the girls, the college girls, her name's Allison, the one Dale thought was cute, um, falls in the water gets knocked out so they come over and rescue her and of course now the college kids think it's like oh my god the creepy the creepy hillbillies uh, have our friend they're going to kill her and eat her meanwhile Tucker and Dale are taking care of her trying to you know bring her you know, back to health and she wakes up and realizes they're nice people and she becomes friends with them and it keeps on switching back and forth from the college kids to the hillbillies and each sees the other as the bad guys and through an unlucky turn of events the college kids start having these accidents where they die. Like one of them trips and falls into like a wood chipper and they're like, Oh my God, the hillbillies killed us. And the hillbillies are like, Oh my God, these crazy college kids are up here. They're, they're committing suicide. It's a suicide pact. Um, so it's, it's a comedy of errors, misunderstandings. Uh, it's gory as hell. Like I said, the kid falls in the wood chipper and it's very obvious what happens to him, but it's so funny because you know, it's, the, they're scared of the kids, the kids are scared of them, they're both trying to fight each other, um, and in the end, there actually does turn out to be someone who is a crazy killer and tries to go after people and stuff, but um, it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Um, no one knows about it. Like, I mentioned it, and people are like, huh, what is that? I think of like five people I know of have seen this movie. Um, but you'll definitely get your, you'll, you'll get your blood and gore, you'll get your 
really gross kills, uh, and you'll have a ton of fun because it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. It's that scene at the gas station is just so funny where he's like trying to flirt with the college student and he's like mm-hmm. he's like so typically like scary redneck he, like does he even say like you got a pretty mouth or something like he says something like that he doesn't say that but it's just like oh my gosh it's like you are totally a, an axe murderer yeah didn't um wasn't it something like happened to him? like he hit the mouth first or something so his mouth was like numb or something i remember there was a reason why he like he was talking funny yep it, it was just that movie is so well put together and i i just laugh at it and people occasionally talk about a tucker and dale too um i think it doesn't need it though it doesn't need it though and i think we're more likely to get a second season of firefly so yeah i mean there's it, it like a very like a good horror movie it does leave it open at the end for um the the killer to come back although i do think it's funny that they eventually <laughs> they kill the killer will quote unquote kill the killer by invoking an asthma attack because they throw chamomile tea at him <laughs> um no it's it's goofy okay. But it's it's so well written and put together, um, and just seeing these these two you know innocent hillbillies like oh my god the college kids they're killing themselves why it's it's just it's hilarious it's go out and see it um, I I think it's on Netflix I know it was for a long time I believe but it's not so. just just go buy it you can get it for five bucks at you know Target Amazon Walmart Best Buy wherever um, it's it's one that ranks up there is I have to watch every single year at least because it just it's that good. Totally worth it. One of the best horror comedies out there. Absolutely. So, anyways, that'll take us to the end of this week. Uh, so, you know, Steve Jobs, go-to movie of the week, and then The Black Hole and Tucker and Dale versus Evil are our Halloween recommendations. Uh, next week, we've got uh, Burnt, which is Bradley Cooper playing a Gordon Ramsay-type character in the kitchen with chefs and knives and fire. Uh, our brand is Crisis, about trying to run a political campaign, I believe, in South America. And to kind of finish up the week of horror movies, we've got The Scouts versus The Zomb- Scouts Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, which, from the trailers I've seen, kind of is going the Tucker and Dale route of being really funny and gory and gross. So um, hopefully it'll be fun, and we'll let you know next week. Hail Satan, and have a lovely afternoon. tripping, but it's all Scored a key, he's gonna fly, punk ass fly.
the boys in the hood are always hard. Come talking that trash and we'll pull your card. Knowing nothing in life but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy, I ain't said shit.